Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode is one part of my hour-long NPR show heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, everything your dog wants you to know, as well as the Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. 9-11 was a little a little while ago, or I should say the anniversary of 9-11, and a very dear friend of mine wrote an opinion piece in USA Today about having been a vet on the ground for the dogs, the rescue and search dogs at 9-11. And I never knew that Dr. Amy Addis, who owns City Pets in New York, which is, uh, she'll come to your apartment or your home and visit your cat or dog. I didn't know that she was one of the vets who volunteered. And the opinion piece that she wrote was so deeply touching because she saw things from the dog's perspective and how hard it was on them both physically, but also mentally, because they were there to detect humans, both, well, they really thought they were going to be looking for injured humans, and they couldn't even find remains. And the piece you wrote, Amy, was so amazing because it it was a perspective on 9-11 that we all forgot about. Everybody thought, you know, I was in, at the time, I was a volunteer in the ambulance in East Hampton, and we were all suiting up, literally, firing up our, our ambulances to drive into the city and help with all those injured people. And that was true across Long Island and I'm sure neighboring communities, not to mention New York City itself, only to discover we weren't needed. Talk a little bit about how you became one of the vets who was there to look after these dogs, their welfare, and make sure they were okay while they were executing the task for which they were born, bred, and trained. I'm happy to do that, Tracy. You know, I have such vivid memories of 9-11 that sometimes I have to catch myself and say, wow, that was 21 years ago. It started that morning where I literally could see the Twin Towers burning from my home. And I think we were all in shock. I actually went to work because what do you do? It's right. Tuesday. You go to work. Right. And as as you described, I make house calls. So I'm in my clients' homes taking care of their dogs and cats. Everybody had the television on. And when we saw the towers falling, I, I think it was a slap up in the face. Then we realized we have to get home. We don't know what's going on here. 
And once I got home, I had the same feeling that you had, which was, what can I do to help? So I immediately went to the local hospital to give blood, and there was a line around the corner of others trying to do the same, and we were told to go home because at that time there was no need for our blood. And I was thinking, you know, well, the services that I can provide as a veterinarian and the fact that I was a house call veterinarian, so I had equipment already packed and ready to go, I realized I needed to get to ground zero. Um, the, the city was completely at a standstill. There were, there were no taxis going around. Everybody was hunkered down. So I showed up at the local police station and said, you know, I'm a veterinarian. There, there are already search and rescue animals down there, so can you get me to ground zero? So that was my first trip in a police car with lights <laughs> and siren flashing. And we went downtown, and it was a completely surreal experience because where I lived in Midtown, things were quiet but looked normal. Right. And as we were heading downtown, things no longer looked normal. They started to look apocalyptic. I mean, the air was a different color, and the smell was unlike anything you had ever smelled before. Um, they took me down to Chamber Street, about three blocks from ground, from ground Zero, and there were already some veterinarians and some medical doctors there. The AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, has a team, the VMAT team, it's Veterinary Medical Assistance Team, and they're deployed wherever there's a disaster, whether it's a hurricane or a flood no or kidding. a fire. No kidding. I didn't know that. So they're they're really well trained and um so they were there when i got there um and we set up like a, a veterinary mash tent it was a table we had a lot of equipment already things were coming down um uh, in vans emergency equipment bandages medications fluids one of my colleagues had set up a a propane heated bathtub. Wow. Because, um, you know, some of the dogs needed to be washed afterwards, and it did get a little cooler in the evening, so we kept hot water all the time. Uh, there were uh, generators, generator trucks that were um, supplying the light. Most of my shifts were nighttime shifts, they were 12 hours long. And oh, my so goodness. Even though it was two o'clock in the morning, it was as light as day from the from the lights that were on all the time. The smell of diesel had you permanently nauseous because it was just so many generators. And God bless America played nonstop. Oh my goodness! So that was sort of the sort oh my of the god! You just gave me chills. Setting. I get chills when I think about it. So we, um, we set up tables where we would sort of interview the people. Um, the, the plan set up was that everybody had to come to us before their dogs went to work so that the dogs would be fully examined, made sure they were in good health beforehand, and then when they completed their shift, they had to come back to us afterwards. And that way, any cuts or bruises, irritations on their eyes or on their skin, could all be um, could all be dealt with right away. We didn't want any any delay in looking at the dog. Let me just interrupt and, and ask, although I think I know the answer. 
all these people, and this is across the United States, even internationally, who have search and rescue dogs, they own the dogs, they've been through extensive training and gotten certified, and they are all volunteers as well, correct? Correct. That is correct. And in the beginning, we only had handlers and dogs that were relatively local because there were no flights flying. Oh, that's right. Of course. Of course. That I met afterwards who came from the West Coast and from Europe, they came several days later. And interestingly, on those airplanes, the dogs were not put in cargo. They were put in first class. No kidding. On the plane. I mean, they they were heroes, and they were being treated like heroes. So um, I'll tell you um, a particular dog that I remember who was so incredibly special a lot of the dogs were German Shepherds. They were Labradors. They were Belgian Malinois. I mean, there were breeds that you associate with Correct. being a search and rescue dog. So this little dog, his name was Porktop. He was <laughs> a mixed breed. He was completely adorable. And um, I worked with him a few times, and his handler told me that he was a rescue, and it was a completely unexpected thing where he just showed up somewhere. They had a puppy, and he said, all right, I'll take this puppy. So he he went directly with this puppy to the supermarket because he didn't have any dog food. And so he had the dog, you know, in the shopping cart, and while he was there, he bought some other things. And when he got home, the label from his dinner of pork chops stuck onto the back of the dog. Oh, my God. And that's how he got his name. That's so cute. So he was just completely adorable. And this man, I don't remember his name, although I remember pork chops. Of course. Um, he recognized that he had an extraordinary dog who was so smart, and he went ahead and um, taught him to be a search and rescue dog. I so, guess really, um, the, you know, the thing that that most stuck out with me was your empathy and compassion in the opinion piece, which I'll have a link to. So, anybody who listens to this on podcast, I highly recommend you read it. It was that you saw things from the dog's perspective and how depressed and deflated they got because they work so hard and for them the payoff is finding the person stuck in the wreckage or even some of them you know an expired person but at least they're finding their victims right and there was nothing to find correct there were search and rescue dogs there and there's also another type of training, which is actually a cadaver dog, where they're not looking for exactly. live bodies, but they're looking That's for, right. for, for dead bodies. Mm-hmm. And the reward for these dogs is finding what they're searching That's right. for, alerting their handler, and then they get an additional reward after that. So these dogs were going through a full session, and they were not able to be rewarded because there was nothing to find. And interestingly, their handlers were depressed. Yeah. So when when they would finish their shifts and we would see these dogs after, you know, day after day coming back, tails down, looking upset, the people were the same way. They were they they were in the middle of it and they weren't able to do any good. So they were unloading their burden on us. And as veterinarians as as empathetic as we can be and compassionate as we can be, I'm not really trained in how to help a human right. through something like right. that. So we actually brought the psychologists and social workers and medical doctors over to our veterinary mash tent 
and ask them to sit with us so that while we were working with the dogs, they could have a conversation with the people. Wow. The people weren't seeking out their services, but we blended to help them. Nice. And, you know, seeing these dogs, typically when you work with a search and rescue dog, they're dogs. They're funny. They're goofy. Yes. And yes. then you put their search and rescue vest on them, and they become very serious professionals. Yep. So the reverse would happen, too. You take the vest off, and they'd be happy-go-lucky dogs. Their handlers were taking their vests off, and they were not happy-go-lucky dogs. They were really having a hard time. So we were getting donations down there. We were getting food. We were getting bandage material. We were getting all kinds of things that we didn't actually need any more of. And we said, we need toys. We need balls. Yes, we need yes. Pull toys. And we started setting up playstations for the dogs. No kidding. And in the beginning, they weren't playing. And then they started again to going back to being happy dogs. That was so brilliant. So, it was, um, you know, I think also helpful for the handlers because in addition to their own mental anguish of what they were going through, it was so disturbing to see their partners looking yes. depressed. And feeling that they were failures. I remember distinctly reading at the time, within days of the towers coming down, that something, and it, and it kept being sent by well-meaning people, I think mostly to firehouses around the city, hundreds of maybe thousands of pounds of dog food, just inundating firehouses. I don't know what dogs people thought they were going to feed because it wasn't even just aimed at search and rescue dogs. Maybe they thought there were dogs homeless because I don't know. But it's interesting how much people want to be able to do something effective and the thing they want to do, just like in horrible tragedies around the world where people send clothes that are inappropriate to the weather or there's no way to get them to the people. We all want to do something. And I just want to say that the sacrifice you made, because it was a sacrifice of your own well-being, it took a lot out of you emotionally. And the opinion piece of what you're saying now makes that clear. But your own health, you knew perfectly well, you were breathing in very toxic fumes, not just the diesel and not just the the evaporation of the buildings and the people, but everything that was going on there, which has since been determined to have a lot of first responders and emergency workers have become ill from it. And you did it. And you did it because that's what a doctor does. And you know, you were a doctor without borders, but for the dogs. And I just want to say thank you. You're welcome. I want to add to that. You know, Tracy, you know I have a loving husband, and um, he made certain that I had an appropriate respirator before I went down to ground No zero. kidding. Now, I never wore my respirator, even though I knew I should be wearing it. Um, you know, if if you had something to eat at Ground Zero, you had to eat it at once, because if you put your can of soda down for two minutes, there would be a layer of silt on top of oh it from God. the debris settling out of the air. So that was what we were breathing. But I couldn't speak with a dog handler who was not wearing a respirator while I was wearing a Good respirator. Point. So we wound up not um, we wound up not taking the precautions that we knew we should have been taking. But again, we were also in this really a, a, a shock phase where nobody was really thinking of about course. how significantly dangerous this was. That's right. Now, after the fact, we all think a lot about this. 
I am monitored every year by no the kidding. Mount Sinai Hospital. Wow. For all of us who were down at ground zero, they monitor my blood. They, they take chest x-rays. They monitor my breathing because they know of dozens of diseases that are already proven to have a causal link between time spent down at ground zero and many, many others that are correlated with time spent at ground zero, but they don't yet have that causal link. So, you know, I, I, I feel even to this day, I feel blessed that I had a skill that could be used at a time when our country had been attacked. And, um, you know, I, I, I know of others who wish that they could have done something Absolutely. and they couldn't. So, so many of us I, were so I frustrated. A friend of mine was a retired firefighter who had been 21 years in Queens, and he went from Port Jefferson. He went to the firehouse. He thought, they're going to need all available people. I mean, he was long retired. He was in his 70s. It's, it's very odd how much people that are in professions that have to do with helping other people or even... In his case, he was a, a paid firefighter. In my case, it was volunteer. The, the helplessness that you feel at not being able to help and the empowerment you feel at being able to be of value and use, you, you make that clear now, and what you wrote made it clear. And I was envious that you had a way to feel that you were part of a solution to this dreadful event. And I, I just think it's really great that you thought about it and wrote about it in such an eloquent way. And... For me, all the anniversaries of September 11th, they come and go. I didn't lose anybody personally. So they don't hit home the way your article did for me. It made me just have more reverence for all the people that volunteered, the search and rescue people, the dogs, you, and all your comrades. So thank you for that, Dr. Amy Addis. You, you are a very special person. Well, thank you, Tracy. Thanks for listening. There are a few more very special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you will support their support of my mission to entertain and educate. Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, is still making natural pet food I feed my own dogs. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and free food for the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. Cradle which makes CBD calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. My Wanda Weimaraner couldn't get through thunderstorms without their cradle melts. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition and makes innovative foods like the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which sometimes is all that Maisie Hotchner will eat. Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by two extraordinary women who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this shorter version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2 and will listen to other episodes sometime soon.